This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. In this podcast, we're going to take a look at two ancient stories, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Welcome to Temptation Island. (laughs) The two texts that Bob read to us this morning, the first from Genesis, the second from Matthew, are all about temptation. And you don't have to have been alive for more than three or four days to know what temptation is. I mean, it's something that we are all more than familiar with. So as we start to explore what this might mean for us this morning, let me give you a little context for the the first story out of Genesis. This story that Bob read about Adam and Eve and the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not an apple. It was a fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that story has been around three, four thousand years. And it was a story that our faith ancestors crafted together to give to us as they wrestled with the complex issue of the birth of a self, self self-awareness, self-consciousness. At some point, human beings, which were animals, if if Darwin is to be believed in evolution, were were, were animals and and were not self-reflective. But at some moment, somehow, some way, somebody became self-reflective. Whoa! I'm alive! I'm here! What's this about? And, and the wonderful psychoanalyst Carl Jung, who I love, says this is the beginning of all of humans' problems. <laughs> he started to look inside and say, what's in there? How did it get there? Where did it come from? What am I doing here? What should I be doing? And so our ancestors looked around and they, they, they saw lions. And a lion would go and eat a gazelle because it was hungry. And they noticed the lions didn't sit down and go, oh, why did I do that? Oh, that gazelle probably had a mother and a father, and now the child's never going to come home, and the mom's going to be worried. Why did I do that? No, the lion was just hungry and went and ate. But we're different. There's something in us that says, why'd you do that? Why'd you say that? What were you thinking? And so how do we wrestle with this? And so this story has been handed to us that we've eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The birth of a self has erupted in us. Now what are we going to do with that? Because prior to this, the way the story paints the picture, the humans were living not out of their self-awareness, but out of their soul. They were in harmony with all of creation and with the creator. Everything was wonderful. It was peaceful. They were living from their soul, as it were, for the sake of the sermon this morning, as opposed to their self. And so what I'm going to try and explore with this text and the, the text from Matthew is how during these days of Lent we might consider trying to live more soulfully and less selfishly. 
So that's sort of the, the play on words there. So let's take a look at Matthew's text. So Matthew has Jesus being sent by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Now, prior to this, Jesus has just been baptized and the Spirit or the breath of God has come down and said to Jesus, you are my beloved child in whom my favor rests. I love you, Jesus. And I love the fact Jesus hadn't done a stinking thing to earn that love. Hadn't healed anybody, hadn't preached, hadn't multiplied any food, hadn't done a thing. God just says, love you. And in Luke's recording of this story, Luke uses a particular verb that the Spirit of God throws Jesus violently into the wilderness. It's a word ekbala in the Greek. And it's the same word that's used in the Gospels when it says Jesus cast a demon out of somebody. Boom! Get out! And so the Spirit of God takes Jesus and boom! Sends him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there's three temptations. And the first temptation, the evil one says to Jesus, appealing to Jesus' self, to his ego. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? You could really, really become very relevant and important if you could turn stones into bread, then there would be no more poverty and people wouldn't die of starvation. And think of all the wars you could prevent because there would just be enough food for everybody. Prove that you are relevant. And I know in all three of the temptations, the devil says, if you are the child of God. Now Jesus is just coming out of the baptism where he heard God say, you are my beloved child. And immediately, is that really true? Are you really the beloved child of God? Then prove that you're relevant. Show that you can do this. That's the great temptation. And, and our egos are always tempted to be relevant. I was talking to Cynthia Schur in the last service. She's a, a business coach and she was saying one of the biggest problems in offices is when people feel irrelevant. They work really hard to become relevant and they do it normally in ways that make themselves more irrelevant because they act not out of kindness or love. But we've we got to be relevant, got to be important. And the antidote to this, I would suggest, is certainly exhibited by the lifestyle of Jesus, is not to work to be relevant, but to work to be vulnerable. I'm going to suggest Jesus lived soulfully not out of his ego. And as a model for us, that Jesus made himself vulnerable. It says in the second chapter of the letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, that Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself. And that there is great power in making ourselves vulnerable to fight the temptation of our egos to prove how relevant and important you are. And one of my favorite books is a book called The uh, Spirituality of Imperfection. It's a 12-step book. And the basic premise of the book, it's a book of stories, but the basic premise is that if you find somebody you can make yourself vulnerable with, that's real communion, communication, community, all those words we love. 
so the thinking is, look, if you and I sit down and have lunch, and you tell me all the wonderful things you've accomplished, how you have been relevant in life, the degrees after your name, the things you've started, the important projects you've worked on. And I tell you all about the books I've written, and I've done this, and I went there and did that, and we talk about, we'll walk away with information about each other, but we will really not have had communion with each other. But if you can find somebody that you trust, and you can sit down and say, you know, you know what keeps me awake at night? I wish I could have been a better dad than I was. Or boy, I, I want to love my wife better than I do. Why do I do it? Or, you know, at work, if I, if I, if I just did this, why do I behave? If you can find somebody to be vulnerable with, and then they would say, oh, you know, I'm the same way. Gosh, I just, why do I? That's real communion. That's, commun that's friendship. That's bonding. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become vulnerable with everybody all the time. That's emotional suicide. <laughs> but you find one or two or three, four people that you can be vulnerable with. That is a way to help me live more soulfully and less selfishly. So that's the first temptation, the temptation to be relevant. Second temptation, the devil takes Jesus up onto the highest part of the temple, there in Jerusalem, and says, jump on down. And then the devil quotes the Bible, Psalm 91. says, if you jump down, God will send angels and they'll catch you and it'll be spectacular. Somebody will catch it on a video and put it on TikTok or YouTube and you will have more clicks and you will be so popular that everyone will want to follow you. The second temptation I suggest is a temptation towards popularity. And Jesus will have none of it. And the great antidote, I think, to individually, my ego wanting to be popular, is to realize the togetherness of we all are. That's why I, I every week, harp on the fact that we're doing this together. The last thing I ever desire is that this church would become the Fred Show. Because that's not good. The reality is we're doing this together. That's why when we do communion here, I make sure we all pray the blessings on the bread and the juice, that we're all asking God to bless it, to make it communion, because we're all in this together. We're all ministers here. We're doing this together. In fact, I, I, I get, uh, every Wednesday, I get a, an email from what's called the Templeton Foundation, and that's a, a huge foundation. There was a man named Sir John Templeton, English guy, had bajillions of dollars, and when he died, left it to a foundation. And he wanted this particular foundation to do research into science and spirituality and see how they can help each other. So every week I get an email. It's sort of the cliff notes of some of these studies that the Templeton Foundation gave money to to figure out how science and spirituality work together. So it's like for dummies, you know, here's, here's the research we did for, well this week, they send information on a research project at Harvard 
that's been going on for 85 years. Started in 1938. And the research is what makes for a happy life. That's what they've been studying. 85 years, Harvard. They've had four different directors because it's been going on so long. What makes for a happy life? And happy here is not happy. Like last night I watched, I, I'm a Boston Celtics fan, so I watched the Celtics uh, win against the 76ers, and so I was happy. My team won. I'm not talking that kind of happy. Or I'm happy that the pizza was just the perfect pizza. It had just the right amount. Not, not, not that... Happy the way Aristotle talked about happy. Aristotle said being happy is the most important thing for a human being. Because he looked at what we all do things for. You know, we go to work. Why do we go to work? To get money. Why do we want money? So we can have a house. Why do we want a house? To be warm in the winter. Why do we want to be warm in the winter? So we'll be happy. And he, he couldn't find anything we do, we'd be happy, leads to. So for him, the highest reality is that we all do what we do to become fulfilled. Flourishing, vibrant, happy. That's that kind of happy. So this study is how what makes for that kind of happy. And here's what they found. And, and the current leader of this uh, project, 85 years, Dr. Robert Waldinger, and he's done a TED Talk on this. It's one of the top 10 TED Talks of all time. It's had over 44 million hits. But he said, this research project for 85 years they, it's not just you fill out a questionnaire what makes you happy. They've done brain scans on these people. They've drawn blood. They do interviews with the people and with the people's family members. So this is a thorough project. Thousands of people over 85 years. It's the largest longitudinal, longitudinal study of this kind ever. And the big takeaway, this is so fascinating. <laughs> the big takeaway you know the number one thing that makes people happy? Good relationships. Whether it's casual relationships, like somebody you work with, that you know, you don't know a lot about their family, or even if they have kids, but you know if you mess up at work, they got your back. And you chit-chat about sports. Even that, all the way up to a loving relationship with a partner. And with your family. And church members. That's the number one thing that makes us happy, is good relationships. And that's why relationships, we talk about it a lot here, and I know I do, but it's not the icing on the cake. It's the cake, it's the menu, it's the deal, it's the meal. It's everything. Because if we have good relationships, the, the research says, not only will you be happy, you'll have less health problems, and you will live longer. Good relationships. So that's why we do this together. And I love the fact that they've spent gajillions of dollars in this study, 85 years out of Harvard, to just verify what Jesus said so many years ago. Love God, love each other. It's really, there's nothing more important than that. So Harvard now agrees with Jesus. That's really all it's about. Now, Henry Nouwen has a wonderful book called In the Name of Jesus, where he talks about these temptations that Matthew has recorded for us. And one of the things Nouwen says, when the devil took Jesus up to the top of the temple and said, jump down, Nouwen has this wonderful insight. He says, you know, 
and he said this as an author of 40 or 50 books, and now I'm taught at Harvard, Notre Dame, and Yale, so he knew what he was talking about. He says, high holy places can be very slippery. Because <laughs> when you think you've got it together, when my ego says, oh, I, I got the bat line to God. I know what God wants, who God likes, and how to become somebody God likes. I'm the man. Very slippery. Very slippery. When the last temptation, Jesus says, look, let's, or the devil says, let's cut to the chase. You bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the money. Give you everything. Jesus declines. Jesus exhibited in his life anti-power. Jesus knew power is, is not a way to live soulfully. Power is what our ego and our self wants. But that's not a way to live soulfully. Jesus resisted power by being a servant. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life for everybody. Henry now and again says, the great temptation to power it's because it's so much easier to control people than to love people. And so we want power to be important, to be relevant. That's what our self wants. And our self, I'm not suggesting our self is bad or evil. It just is. It's part of us. But that the goal here is to live soulfully and not selfishly. So... I'm going to suggest as we begin this 40 days of Lent to consider how we might live more soulfully as people on this planet. And so here's some wisdom from Pope Francis, the Catholic Pope, as we begin Lent. Pope Francis suggests that if we're going to fast, which is a common custom during Lent, that we fast from hurting words and that we look for ways to say kind words. That we fast from being afraid that there's not enough. And we look for ways to experience gratitude and to live gratefully. That we fast from being angry and we fill ourselves and look for ways to nurture patience in our lives. That we fast from pessimism and cynicism, and we look to nurture hope for us and for those who have the sometimes difficult task of living with us. That we fast from complaining and contemplate how we might live more simply. That we fast from all the pressures that drive ourself and our ego crazy, and become more prayerful. That we fast from bitterness and look for ways to fill our hearts with joy. That we fast from selfishness and look to be more compassionate. That we fast from grudges and we look for ways to reconcile with others. And finally, Pope Francis suggests that we fast from words and become silent so that we might listen. So these are some suggestions on how 
this season we might actually engage with living a more soulful life and a less selfish life.